0: Cyberbit is offering Cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at Cyberbit.com/slash Cyberwire.
1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, Spycast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about Spycast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at That's spycast at Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Rory Cormack, who's an associate professor of international relations at the University of Nottingham, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a leading expert among a new generation of intelligence historians. He specializes in British covert operations and the secret pursuit of foreign policy. He's published widely on intelligence and security issues and regularly appears on radio and television. He's a co-author of The Black Door, Spy, Secret Intelligence, and British Prime Ministers, and featured on Channel 4 Spying on the Royals. His newest book is Disrupt and Deny: Spy, Special Forces, and the Secret Pursuit of British Foreign Policy. So welcome, Rory. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. So let me let me ask this question. This is an expansive book. This is, this isn't covering just one small period of British covert action. This is decades and decades of British covert action. So what made you think it was time to write a book like this?
2: Well, it started, well, it was supposed to be a lot smaller than it actually was. and But I soon realized that the British understanding of covert action is just horribly broad, which kind of forced me to look at more than I was initially planning to or hoping to. But I thought there hasn't really been a book giving the broad history of British covert action we think of it as an American thing an American phrase but I kept seeing the phrase covert action turn up in British files and I realized there's more out there in the British files than I think people realized so I thought well now's the time to write a a book based almost entirely on archives on on files Um, and try to go as far as I possibly could. But obviously, the archival evidence starts to thin out in the uh, 70s or 80s. But even then, there's still surprising amounts of um, material available. Well, yeah, you, you brought my, basically my next question, a
1: great segue here, is because we've had a lot of authors who have spent a lot of time in American archives, the National Archives or others. The British classification system is, is different in the United States. There's, in some cases, less access to a lot of documents, in some cases, more access how much more? Because you, you've done some kind of over the Atlantic research into American intelligence as well. How much different uh, is it working within the British archives versus American version?
2: It's so different. The so the Brits um, classify all MI6 material, um, all Special Forces material, um, most MI5. The only stuff that's out is wartime, uh, pre World War Two, and, and and some World War Two. Um, and it's difficult to get hold of of material. So what we have to do is try and be creative in thinking about, well, what other file might this pop up in? Um, and some of the coolest stuff I got for the book came from treasury files, for example, because maybe they're less stringent and um, less on the lookout for secret stuff. Um, but... Oddly, a lot of material on Britain that you can't really get back home is available here. Because our intelligence services obviously work so closely together, things will pop up in presidential archives here, in the national archives here. And so to be able to study British British intelligence, you almost have to use... National Archives at home Mm -hmm. plus private archives at home plus presidential archives plus the National Archives here and have a really multi-archival approach to be able to fill in uh, to be able to fill in those gaps the British archives I would say are a lot easier to use uh, are much much easier to use and I always feel I've been to um, American archives quite a few times but every time I go I feel like a junior undergraduate hitting the archives for the first time. Even if you've been there a lot
1: <laughs> you still feel like what the hell is <laughs> I mean, the OSS archives one day someone might do something to help you find things but it's not anytime soon I, I often talk about intelligence history as being incredibly frustrating to research but it's also it, it's a bit exciting if you have a certain personality because you do get to kind of how do I get around this problem Right? I'm not going to get the document that I need from CIA. I'm not going to get the document I need from SIS. How can I nibble around the edges and find this information? It's only like a detective story in many cases. I mean, I know for some of my research, I found something incredibly important uh, on an anesthesiology webpage because a guy who was very integral in World War II intelligence later became a lawyer for American Anesthesiologist Foundation. And so they had decided to publish his unpublished memoir. So, like, One of the random places, like, did you find? Chase certain threads and leads
2: to places you were completely unexpected to find something worthwhile. It, it, it is it is frustrating, um, but I I think I have that personality type that you mentioned. I I love the challenge. I love the challenge of trying to tell a story of something that that clearly happened that we haven't. Formally admitted happened, and there's crumbs, um, and you get to go on these journeys to try and stitch these bits and pieces together. Um, but the thing that I found most striking in that journey was how banal a lot of the stuff that's classified and redacted actually is. So you'll come across a document, and it'll all be um, redacted, but all, all blacked out, and you think, okay. I want to see what's in here. The title's super cool. Um, it's going to be intriguing. And so you <clears throat> squirrel around um, the the archives trying to find who might, else might have read it, which which other department's files might it pop up in. And I remember there was one particular file and I was desperate to get hold of it. I spent ages in the archives trying to um, think maybe the, the Foreign Office's Maritime and Transport Department might have a copy. Um, and sure enough, I managed to track it down. And... It wasn't redacted in this other version. And I would, you know, like feeling, you get so super excited, um, opened it up, and it was the most boring thing, and I was so disappointed. Um, so you have, yeah, it's a challenge, you have lots of uh, frustrations, but when you do get that little bit of bit of gold, it is, it is very exciting. Well, I mean, it's a target-rich
1: environment. You have things that, by definition, haven't been seen, right? It's not like doing history in other fields, where, in many cases, you're kind of reinterpreting something mm-hmm. that people already know about. When something gets declassified, you're the first non-government official or person that not didn't work directly on it to actually have seen this stuff, especially when you're talking about covert action, which is the most secret of the secret. I and mean, maybe SIGINT yeah. might be a little step further. I mean, the GCHQ stuff and NSA stuff might be locked up for a long, long time. When you're talking about more traditional intelligence or covert action, these covert actions are covert and intended to be covert for a long, long time.
2: Yeah. And... Um, but there's still traces, and there's obviously there's no covert action file series at the National Archives, uh, and kind of I wish I'm glad there isn't because then it would be easy and everyone would be doing it. Um, but there are enough little clues, little little nibbles in in different um, in different departments to be able to build a narrative from all these little 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 fragments. So we don't have the problem. I think it's a luxury um, that. I don't know, a, di- a more traditional diplomatic historian might have when they would be doing, say, British or American policy towards NATO in the 1950s, 60s. They'd have so many files to right. look through. And I've, I, don't know how, I don't know where you'd start. If you're doing stand, standard diplomatic history, pre-war diplomacy, you will have literally tens of thousands of bits of paper to look through. Um, whereas us... We're relying on snippets and, right. and, and, and half-redacted quotes, and then trying to build a, a robust narrative from that, which I find much more uh, enjoyable. Um, but I, I don't know whether how diplomatic historians do it. We're having this massive right. abundance of sources.
1: Well, let's let's look at the kind of the, the bottom line up front of, of the book and kind of the argument. And, and really, you mentioned that the fact that most people think of the United States when they think of covert action, but the the, the British have been incredibly involved. In doing this, this you know the, you, your book has plenty of sources that tell us that to be true. So let me ask a question again. This is kind of the underlying question to me of the book: is why did the British become so dependent on covert action during the post-war period? Really focus on the Cold War and beyond. I wrote a bunch of reasons down, you know, and if you don't get to some of them, I'll jump right in. But there's a lot of them, and I think that you do a good job in laying these out, and it makes a ton of sense why this happened.
2: Yeah, I think the main the main reason is because coming out of World War II, we had no money. We, we were skinned. We were completely bankrupt, or not completely, but near bankrupt. Um, um, and yet we still had and have this perception of ourselves as a global power with responsibilities all over the world. And this created a massive mismatch between... The capabilities we actually had, the number of armed forces, the money we had to spend um, versus our perceived responsibilities. And successive prime ministers saw the hidden hand as a way to bridge um, that, that gap as a way to mask decline as as force multiplication. And we see it even still today in an era when um, the UK government has cut pretty much every single organ of state, uh, including the armed forces, the foreign office, traditional diplomacy. It's just intelligence and special forces which have seen increases. And I think Britain sees it as a as a force multiplier, to allow us to carry on playing a global role when our actual capabilities are dwindling.
1: I mean, cover action, kind of writ large, whether it's the British, the Americans, or anybody else, does have some added advantages to it as well. I mean, everything from, you talked about force multiplier, but also things that you couldn't necessarily do overtly, you know, whether, you know, dealing with terrorists directly or, you know... Trying to find ways to do things that have impact, may not lead to war. Mm -hmm. So as we talk about the Cold War during this time, because if you get a war, it's not going to go very well for anyone. (laughs) Um, And the idea of, you talked about the British Empire kind of collapsing. Um, People don't realize it, perhaps, uh, unless they've been, you know, very astute students of history. But I think the British Empire shrank by, what, three, four hundred percent? Yeah, I mean, you, most of Africa, a lot of East Asia, a lot of these—all becoming independent all at once—and kind of filling in that 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 gap between just letting them all go off and do their own thing, and hoping that the Soviets don't pop in and take power—is um, something that you can't necessarily do with the armed forces and diplomacy.
2: Yeah, and as soon as the as soon as you end up um, using armed forces or. Um, or diplomacy, anything open, then there are accusations of imperialism and neo-imperialism. And as more and more states became independent, joined the United Nations, that uh, accusation of neo-imperialism became larger from the UN because there were more recently um, decolonized states uh, in it. And the Brits were very sensitive to that. They they knew they they, they almost kind of lamented the old days where they could go in with. Uh, Gumbo diplomacy. Right. Um, and they suddenly realise, well, we can't do that anymore. We can't go and just kind of wave some guns. We can't go and just fiddle their, um, fiddle their constitution. Um, so we'll have to be a bit more creative. We'll have to think, okay, well, can we, can we manipulate an election? Can we bribe a particular party? Can we blackmail a particular party? And the other driver, as you, as you alluded to, was the fear of who's going to replace British influence. This was um, kind of um, preventative covert action, maybe fearing Soviet exploitation of a power vacuum. So Britain was thinking, well who are the, the kind of least worst actor that we, from our perspective, the least worst actor that we can ensure wins this election? And there was a massive, massive process of trying to fiddle those um, semi-overtly uh, and covertly. But at the same time, there was debate uh, in London about whether this was the inherently wrong, whether Britain should not use covert action against uh, colonial uh, populations, because it undermined... What we thought was our very orderly approach to decolonization. and and this is a, a, a broader issue of a British covert action, and maybe another driver of British covert action was this tension between the British leaders self-identity of of being gentlemen in a world of players that it's it's just as we say at home it's just not cricket brits don't do that kind of thing and that's that was a constant tension between well, do we do we do dirty tricks hidden hand stuff or do we keep our hands clean and be good brits about it and that was i assume it's still something that's debated today
1: well to me what you bring up is the economy that i noticed in the book is the idea you talk about World War II is really where the professionalization of covert action comes from. You know, people may not know, you know, the SOE and even the SAS and the kind of the professionalization of propaganda operations, information operations. But that was during a war against the Nazis. And there is that foundation that's built during the war. But it seems that successive prime ministers and governments have gone in very different directions from that and and maybe left that professionalism behind.
2: Um. So yeah, I would I would agree that they have it was it was professionalised and massively institutionalised during the war, and this gave this left a huge dilemma when when the, war, when the war ended. Do do we carry on doing covert action in peacetime? And the Foreign Office, the diplomats in the Foreign Office, were very very nervous about this. The military were like, hell yeah, <laughs> let's go for it. Um, the Foreign Office. Were more cautious. It was risky. It was wasn't very British, um, and it wasn't until the Cold War really heated up that they started to move in that direction. But even then, they were um, more cautious in the military. It was constant bureaucratic fighting between the two of them, um, with the diplomats kind of outplaying the military in various political games. Um, but I would I would argue that very, uh, prime ministers have actually been pretty similar in their approach to using. Not just covert action, but intelligence more broadly. Mm. They kind of realise the the power, and they're often often quite seduced by it. They see it as a as a silver bullet to to quietly resolve a, an intractable problem. Um, and so, even as wildly different characters as, as Clement Attlee, Churchill, Eden, we see. A lot of consistency during during what uh, during the uh, post-war era, we might expect, for example, Churchill when he comes back in '51, we might expect him to to recreate special operations executive and hardcore special ops because he was so in love with that during the war. But in reality, he was quite cautious in Europe anyway. In, in the Middle East, it's a different story, and <laughs> he was happy to go nuts. Um, but in Europe, he was quite cautious and. Car- carried on Atlee's covert action almost exactly. And the reason was because um, he wanted to be known as the man who won the, fir- won, the, won the Second World War and ended the Cold War. And he was desperate for a Nobel Peace Prize. And so he feared that a special operation going wrong might escalate and, and undermine that legacy. And you can imagine his... Um, his reaction when the Nobel Committee one day phones him up. And he's he's so, so excited. He's like, yes, this is it. I'm going to get my Nobel Peace Prize. And he wins for the, the Nobel Prize for literature. <laughs> <laughs> his heart must have sank. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um,
1: another interesting difference between the British version of covert action and the American version is, is US laws are much more codified when it comes to covert act. I mean, even more today, right? You know, during that time period, it wasn't as much. But now we've got executive order 12333 and presidential findings and everything that's more laid down in law. And in the, in what I thought was really interesting was the idea that there's there's no strong line of demarcation in the UK between intelligence collection and covert action. They're, they're so intricately intertwined that you don't necessarily see that as much. You do now, right? You know, during the war on terror, traditional intelligence covert action go hand in hand. But during the Cold War, they were kind of different animals in the United States. But that had never really been the case in the
2: UK. It was partly because we couldn't afford to duplicate resources uh, in a way. Maybe the, the Americans with, with, with greater uh, assets and, and funding were able to have uh, two separate channels. But they they tried. They thought they th- coming out of World War II, they, they did think, well, these are two separate things. We're going to have intelligence collection first. And that will then inform covert action, just like intelligence would inform any other means of policy execution. But it soon crumbled and it crumbled as early as 48, 49 in Albania when they realized that um, this kind of neat two-step approach, Intel, then covert action, wouldn't really work because, because they had to launch covert actions in Albania in order to gather intelligence to see whether the population was ripe for insurrection. And the chief of SIS um, came back to the foreign office and said, look, I can't send out my my officers, my agents, um, to ask people if they're ready for a revolution. We have to use small, scale covert action as a means of intelligence gathering in its own right. And it gets into quite a detailed conceptual debate, which they were having um, at the time. And it, it occasionally popped its head back up. In the 1960s, they were quite keen to separate intelligence assessments from covert action discussions for fear of polluting the, the, the objectivity of the intelligence assessment. But it, it is generally more fluid. Um, it's more about intelligence. Like, they, they see covert action as intelligence doing stuff. Changing stuff, having having an effect, um, and Britain does have a lot less written down. Prefers to operate in this grey zone. It gives them flexibility. It gives them nimbleness, uh, which which they believe uh, is an asset for when working with with par- international partners, particularly America. Um, and it was only until wasn't until 1994, the I mean, Intelligence Services Act, that. MI6 is even legally avowed. So until then, we d- we didn't go through anything like um, the Church Committee and the various other inquiries. And I think that was a- another reason why we didn't have much oversight. We didn't have any uh, legal authorization framework. No equivalent of the Presidential Finding, which have a very different um, history uh, compared to compared to the CIA. And in fact, the British were. Petrified during the the season of inquiry in the seventies, um, the Congress was going through various uh, CIA files which involved liaison with the Brits, and we, the Brits Brit were so scared that our dirty laundry would um, be aired in uh, in Congress. And you can see various files going, "Oh my goodness how how do we how do we deal with this if if it is?" Because Britain then as now was was still very very secretive.
1: Well, there is also an interesting difference in that. The CIA comes out of OSS, obviously, but there is that gap in between. There is kind of a, a year and a half when OSS has stood down and you've got CIG and a bunch of other crap in the middle. And then, although you bring in some old OSS guys like Alan Dulles that run the CIA in the 50s, there is that lack of continuity. The person you're talking about in the Balkans who talked about covert action for the State of intelligence Collection, Stuart Mengi is the same guy who ran SIS for the entirety of World War II. You know, that, that's this long-running thing. <laughs> And so I'm wondering, do you see more continuity in action, in philosophy? Because you mentioned the fact that Mengi's noticed in Albania that you needed to do that, but it almost seemed like that was his philosophy going in.
2: It's a good question. Um, I don't know, that's not something I've really thought about. I would... There is continuity, yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, in So, Minges wanted to retire at the end of World War II because... They won. His 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 kudos was really high. Um, Churchill introduced well, not introduced him. They were probably already met, but um, paraded him around Buckingham Palace with the king, going, "This this man helped us win the war." And Mingus thinks, "Well, there's nowhere there's nowhere else for me to go." But he's convinced to stay on for that continuity for that transition as as the as the Cold War becomes more apparent. Um, and there's continuity in special operations because Britain used the same few people ex-SOE. so SOE gets closed down um, in '46. Um, the capability gets integrated into SIS. Foreign Office gets a veto over covert action. Are very happy about this. Um, the military less so. Um, but they rely on these same few people who served behind enemy lines in World War Two to do British covert action for years. Afterwards, so it's a very small little group. People like um, um, David Smiley, um, Sterling, McLean, Amory. I mean, it's it, a, it's a hard to forget Smiley's name, right? If you think about <laughs> British intelligence. And the... Sorry. Yeah, I still manage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a small, it's a small cluster of people, and they are involved. Maybe, maybe not in active terms, but they're they're planning it. They're meeting with dissidents. um, From World War II, in Amory's case, all the way to the 1990s, it's the same people who just pop up time and time again. Their influence ebbs and flows, as it would in any um, government, but they're always there. And I think it's this kind of British old-boy network from the war um, who maintained influence for literally decades afterwards. And that did give a sense of continuity and, and probably helped shape what might be seen as a British way in covert action. Well,
1: that's why Albania seemed to make so much sense. It was kind of the back door of the SOE. And they knew of the land. They 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 worked there directly on the ground. So it made a ton of sense that it was kind of their test case.
2: Yeah, and it was, just, it was literally the same people who had just yeah. gone in... Um, Fighting with the partisans in the war, um, same people making contact with the same wartime contacts, cashing in those uh, those um, those relationships um, to try and to try and uh, ultimate. Well, this is where the British files are really frustrating because the actual end goal of Albania it changed on a daily basis. And you have people like Amory um, who love covert action, their romance of all and love fighting alongside partisans. Um, and, and they're going to Albania and kind of promising more than was actually agreed in Whitehall. So he's going and saying, well, yeah, let's rise up, let's overthrow Enver Hoxha, um, the, the leader, let's liberate the Albanian people. But if you look at the files back home, the Foreign Secretary has only ever actually agreed to starting a small intelligence gathering operation to see if it's feasible um, and to disrupt uh, supply lines that are feeding the Greek Civil War. So you get this constant um, disconnect between what certain proponents are saying has been agreed, but what has actually been agreed. And that makes it quite hard for the historian, obviously.
0: (laughs) We'll be right back after this. Well, how hard?
1: I mean, it's been knee-jerk in the past to blame the failures in the beginning of the Cold War on a on a simple answer, and that's Kim Philby. Yeah, that that seems overly simplistic. Okay, I think that that's a lazy way of looking at this in many cases.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think Albania is is an example of that. the The earlier literature gave that exact line. Albania was well, horribly wrong because that man Philby. Whereas more recent. Um, Books and, and and files show that the Soviets were aware of it. The Albanians were aware of it before Philby could have known about it, and it shows the um, some of the the dissidents with whom the British worked were rather loose lipped, to put it lightly, um, and very factional. And they, they were they were, fight, as, as, uh, they were just fighting each other a, a lot. Um, I drove the Foreign Office mad. It drove my 6 mad. And in fact, before they even did this, the Foreign Office, um, someone in the Foreign Office said, mark my words, working with uh, emig- dissident emigrate groups will be a disaster. And as it turned out to be, it, there, was a, there was a big, I told you so moment in about 1950. Let me ask you about the pinprick approach.
1: This, this seems to be almost a, a compromise between the Foreign Office and the military, between SIS and the Foreign Office, the idea of, actually doing things that may have had an, an effect. As you actually you did talk about the fact that Stalin became more paranoid. There were purges in Eastern Europe. There were certain things that you can point to as being potential impacts of this. But it doesn't necessarily risk escalation. So it's kind of small and around the
2: edges. It's really intangible. So it's, it's dead hard to to quantify what difference, um, difference it made. But it involved... It involved gradually trying to erode authority, gradually just making a nuisance of yourself. Um, Not through liberation, not through arming people, not through trying to do coups, um, but through um, propaganda, planting evidence on officials to discredit them. through even weird stuff well one 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 example which was which um, Ming has put forward was was stink bombs let's use stink bombs behind the iron curtain and, and it got laughed at because it's a bit silly but the idea was it would just it would disrupt communist party meetings and it would just add an air of chaos and, and lack of authority and that was the approach from 1950 um, when Attlee signed off on it Literally all the way through until the until the seventies this is for Europe uh, again, we went a bit more hardcore um in, in in further away places where the risk of escalation was perceived to be less, but in europe it was it was gradually eroding, gradually chipping away, causing trouble for the Soviets in their backyard to prevent them from um, intervening in our um, neck of the woods um so yeah it was it was this kind of gradual constant chipping away.
1: Well, I mean, big picture, diplomatic historians have been pointing out for a long time that the idea of the Red Army using the whole full Warsaw Pact forces was a complete illusion that because of the covert action like this and because of covert action and other efforts being done by other countries like the Americans, the likelihood that the Soviets would have to be worried about the Polish Army or the Hungarian Army or the Czech Army as much as the British or the French or NATO was incredibly high. It's because of these operations to make these satellite states either incredibly suspicious of the Soviets or vice versa, to where the Soviets would probably need to leave some kind of garrison force in the area to guarantee that they don't lose the country altogether while they're fighting NATO.
2: And and in the British files, they're explicit about that. They say, let's make the satellite countries' armed forces a liability. Let's let's turn it on its head. They are not a Soviet asset. Let's turn them into a liability. Let's think of all of the uh, fissures between satellite populations and and Moscow. Um, and let, where where do they disagree? What are the what are the what are the tensions between them? And let's smash those open. Um, let's throw in propaganda. Let's let's um, create narratives that the, the, the Soviets are exploiting um, Polish. Uh, economy, um, or, or there was a big thing about um, Czechoslovakian economy, and the Soviets were they, they were pro- they were playing on this. I can't remember the exact example, but the Czechoslovakians were, were fearing that they were being exploited economically by the Soviets, um, by the Russians, and so Britain's like, okay, let's um, let's make them think that even more.
1: I mean, then that's classic information operations. We. Anyone in the United States should understand how that works.
2: Yeah, it's, so it's, it, that's what—that's one of the things that struck me was that this—this this is timeless. So regardless of the new um, internet means of communication, the actual fundamental desire to split people, to split alliances, to create suspicion, to create distrust, is—is um, is timeless.
1: You, you alluded to the fact that the Europe there were a little bit more. Uh cautious than they were in other parts of the world. And it seems the Middle East was a major testing ground for British covert action, specifically propaganda, but also other covert action. Even starting as, as soon as the late 1940s and the move in the repatriation or immigration or whatever word you want to use to Israel, um, where people may be surprised to know the position that the British government took on immigration to that
2: area of the world. This was Operation Embarrass, and the the goal was to prevent illegal uh, immigration to Palestine from, from Europe, particularly from the refugee camps in, in Italy. And operations involved um, sabotaging ships, w- which were due, I should add, did not have refugees on them at the time when they blew these ships up, um, but which were due to carry uh, refugees ac- across the Mediterranean. It involved... Um, propaganda to convince them that, that Palestine would be horrible and they might as well stay in, in refugee camps in in, in Italy. Um, and yeah, when you think about the context of that and what these people had just gone through and the determination of of the Brits going all the way up to the Prime Minister to prevent the Excess, as they saw it, immigration. Um, it, it's quite a striking operation, I think. And then, I and mean, then it, it goes from there. Um, Iran fifty three. Uh, right. I mean, you talk about
1: pinprick before. This was bold. This was not a pinprick operation.
2: <laughs> but it still started yeah. quite small. And I think that's quite that's another kind of aspect of the British approach is they don't kind of go always go hell for leather instantly. And um, this um, Iran took two years of of. Um, undermining Mossadak until we actually managed to overthrow him with uh, with American assistance. And, and Britain was um, quite open about how it was trying to manipulate the CIA into bringing uh, them on board, um, openly saying, well, let's exaggerate the communist threat, basically. Um, but there's this narrative that, in, in, in the British literature anyway, that the Americans, the CIA, were, were the gung-ho uh, covert action is, if that's a phrase. And the Brits were there, the responsible moderates, trying to rein, rein them in to make sure they didn't go and start World War Three, which was kind of how we saw ourselves in Europe, but it was completely the other way around in, in the Middle East, and there's great American files going... Jesus, what what the hell are you doing as, as Brits are trying to overthrow about four different governments yeah. all at the same time in the mid-1950s? Well, I mean, Nasser in fifty six is
1: really kind of the, the epitome of this, where the, the Americans actually almost... not. there was never a chance of armed conflict between the Americans and the British, but they were at loggerheads. I mean, they're the, the one weird bedfellow where the Americans and the Soviets are kind of on the same side <laughs> yeah. against the Israelis, <laughs> French, and British, like... What the hell is going on here?
2: Do you know what I think is the craziest thing about that whole um, d- uh, debacle is that, yeah, the Americans are megaly angry at what, what the Brits did. And yet we were co- colluding w- with the Americans to overthrow the Syrian government right. like less than a year afterwards and almost doing the same thing. So the plan was, this was um, autumn 1957, um, and the plan was to uh, collude with either Iraq or Jordan to intervene in Syria, which would give a pretext for some sort of uprising revolution to overthrow the Syrian state. Now, that is similar-ish to British colluding with Israel to invade Egypt as a pretext, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I just, I find that kind of different levels of relations and diplomacy really interesting. So you've got the Americans and the British shouting at each other over Suez, but almost simultaneously they are colluding together and with other Middle Eastern allies to do similar stuff in in Syria. So um, there were around around the mid-1950s there were at least three attempts to overthrow the Syrian government all of which Britain spearheaded and again tried to bring the CIA in. Um, Britain was trying to drive A wedge between different factions of the Saudi royal family. Uh, Britain was there. Were were some great plans to try and kidnap a Saudi sheikh in 1953 as part of a a dispute. Um, We were trying to. We're doing um, sponsoring tribal raids against the Yemeni imam. um, Propaganda in in uh, in Oman, Lebanon. It was it was it was everywhere, and this was. Partly a kind of testing ground to see what would work. Partly because Iran had been deemed super successful, and there's the Foreign Office admitted that they 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 agreed to subsequent operations that they had they had previously previously said no to because Iran had been so successful, and um, and also because Britain I I do think felt they could operate with a bit more impunity in the Middle East. A lot of these people were imperialists at heart, old-fashioned imperialists who thought that they knew the Arab mind. I mean, the, right. the Orientalist scholars would have a, would have a field right. day in the British files on here. It's like, we know the, the Arab mind. We've been here for 200 years. Right. Descendants of T.E. Lawrence. And, All that kind yeah, of stuff, yeah. yeah. So we know the propaganda lines to play because we, we know how to play these people. Um, obviously, <laughs> they didn't. Well, I mean, there are
1: still limits to how far they would go. I mean, you, you talk about assassination plots toward Nasser that were never carried out, never agreed upon because, you know, whether it's a new SIS director comes in, Dick White, or, or other people who are refusing to go that far. I mean, kind of another juxtaposition to the Americans where assassination wasn't necessarily seen as, as problematic.
2: It's hard, yeah, it's hard to know, like, how far these things went because of, when we talked about earlier about f- files and sources, this is the stuff that is, yeah. it, it is not, it is just not there. And the cabinet secretary, uh, Norman Brooke, after Suez, um, took a load of boxes out of the cabinet office and basically said, no, no one's ever going to see these. Uh, and sure enough, we haven't. Um, so, and it's, it's hard to know, but we know that <clears throat> that some of the protagonists said they had authority from the Prime Minister himself we know there were various schemes which were developed we don't know how far they were ever actually implemented um, or even how far they kind of progressed from I don't know a a chat between two blokes in a London club over cigars and brandy and how much it was actually a formal um, operation but the famous examples uh, are poison chocolates exploding cigars um, poison gas in in NASA's ventilation system, but then you're right, dick white comes in and he says however however far these have got stop we we don't we don't do that kind of thing and and he also stopped a, a another request for to to um to kill a, a Thai resistance leader i think at the same time but dick white although that was assassination was a step too far, he was still quite in favor of covert action he wanted to he he, he still brought his Schoolmaster way of thinking to it. He wants to order it and regulate it and normalize it into foreign policy, and it's kind of just kind of low key constant. That was that was his approach. Um, so no, Britain has no comparable track record of of, of assassination um, with other with other countries. But that's not to say we weren't happy when a certain person whom we might have wanted to to, to die ended up being killed, and and we were just frankly. Well, how can we, we could say we're a bit more cowardly about it, a bit less direct? Um, we would potentially, I keep saying we, I've got to stop saying we. Yeah, the right. British, <laughs> I had no involvement in any yes. of this. The, the British, um, the British use propaganda to discredit somebody so much that they are effectively painting a target on that person's back. And there are a couple of examples in the Middle East of, of propaganda whipping the mob up into a fervour and ultimately killing someone that, that the Brits were. Not disappointed to see die, shall we say?
1: I want to hit up a couple more broad topics. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit chronologically into the 1970s because the dynamic in Northern Ireland is really interesting. This, this is really tricky. It's kind of this domestic, foreign. How do you apply traditional covert action methods to your own territory, and how does that really kind of gel with your laws inside your country? <laughs> Uh, and that, that to me was really interesting. The propaganda use was extraordinarily good during the troubles.
2: And they had to justify it because what was deemed okay on the other side of the world against um, the Malaysian people or, or the Indonesians um, or against the Soviets, who were, you know, the, the big existential threat, what was deemed okay against them was obviously a lot more problematic literally on the streets of... Um, of the UK. And so my favourite way in which they justified subverting their own people, essentially, was to internationalise the, the, the IRA and the nationalists. So they said, well, um, this falls in Foreign Office propaganda remit because A, they're not British, they're Irish. B, they're sponsored by the Soviets, which brings them into our remit. And my favourite was, well, they're Catholic They've got links to the, to the Vatican City, which is a foreign state. <laughs> therefore, we can subvert them. So you see all this constant kind of self-justification because they know they know it's dodgy, um, but for various reasons they think it's necessary.
1: And some of the the ideas, the propaganda ideas, the you know chemicals inside bombs can give you cancer, and women's underwear would friction and they'd blow up. But like it was. Pretty impressive, some of the ideas that come out of this. I mean, it's a masterclass. I mean, you look back at World War II and some of the ideas that came out of SIS and OSS for propaganda operations were pretty great. But this is a time when you're like, you know what? Well, is it because that was really the limit to what covert action? You're not going to go in there and do any kind of sabotage operation in Northern Ireland necessarily. Not direct like you would in like Oman. Propaganda really is your main weapon at this point. Uh,
2: yeah, as one as one tool in the broader um, counterterrorism or, or counterinsurgency campaign, it was it was really really important, and it was but it was particularly important at a more bureaucratic level because the propagandists in the Foreign Office felt under threat at the time. This this was an era of détente, and um, there was moves against. Cold war propaganda as a as a thing we shouldn 't be doing it anymore, and they thought, well, we need to justify our existence here we' uh, they 're having staff cuts, budget cuts. Um, here is a conflict that we can um, get involved in and show the the, the overlords at home that that we 're good and we can we can make a difference and the other thing i 'd say is that it was ideas or techniques honed over quite a long time now, and it, that idea of continuity, these same people were being. Drafted between different um, regions, uh, ending up serving in, in Ireland. Um, so they they are quite well practiced. And then the third factor potentially is because it was closer to home. The Brits maybe arguably had a better sense of what the fault lines were, what the what the tensions, what the paranoia, the, 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 where, where, where the where the nationalists where the IRA were most vulnerable right. it could be because because they because it's our backyard in a way that or even though we thought we knew the Arab right. mind we, we didn't
1: yeah I mean effective propaganda is all about being able to identify where you can stick the knife and twist it the <sighs>
2: Yeah, and I think because because it was so close to home, we were, we're um, slightly advantageous in that sense. Well, I, I don't want to overstate that because they still um, were far too indiscriminate in their in their use, and they only had, they only actually had one guy on the army propaganda team anyway. He was from Northern Ireland, um, so I didn't go too far down that. But yeah, definitely more than than some of the uh, imperial countries. Let me bring up the the.
1: Something we've talked about several times, kind of tangentially, but let's be kind of hit it head on is the cooperation between British covert action and American covert action. There's a cooperation between SIS and CIA, it's pretty extraordinary. And at first, as you explain, the British had the expertise, you know, they're they actually the kind of the teachers in many cases. And there's an interesting line that you throw in there from Frank Wisner talking about anytime we need to do something there's a british island somewhere nearby <laughs> yeah. that we can launch it from so kind of the expanse of the british empire was key and you mentioned this was there a perception among american intelligence that the british were too cautious too slow didn't move fast enough certainly when it came to europe
2: not as much as i thought that was going to be and so obviously obviously the relationship is is dead close compared to kovac's relationship much any other country it's very very close but what struck me within within those parameters was how much competition there was and how much rivalry there was and how quickly that that cliched narrative of um the americans have the money the brits have the expertise how quickly that fell fell apart and as early as albania um there was there were tensions and and there's some great files where the americans are saying hang on I thought you guys were supposed to be good. <laughs> what the heck are you doing over there? And we're doing the same. We're thinking, Jesus, these 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 gung ho Americans. And it wasn't like we were the cautious ones, and the Americans were were, were more uh, more provocative. There's, there was one one file that really shocked me was was an American file saying, "Geez, the Brits are, are being a bit bit much in Eastern Europe," and that goes against everything that, that I that I was expecting. Um, so in Albania, they, they agreed on, what was the phrase? Uh, policy coordination, but operational disengagement, which basically means we're going for the same goal, but let's not interfere with each other. Because um, at one point, I think a British trained team and an American trained team were kind of chasing each other inadvertently around <laughs> Albania because it's such a small country. Um, and it kind of went from there. And um, so, yeah, we mentioned Iran, we were deliberately trying to recruit, for want of a better word, CIA uh, involvement. Syria in '56, we were putting the pressure on again. Um, And the idea, I think Britain saw covert action as a means of uh, maintaining leverage in what was an increasingly asymmetric relationship. But covert action, or intelligence more broadly, is one of the few areas where Britain can genuinely offer something. I think that and and, and nuclear weapons right. traditionally. Um, so we were desperately trying to keep the Americans on board. But there was there was still competition. One of my favourite examples was British Guyana in the 1960s, when um, Cheddi Jagan comes to power and the CIA are uh, petrified about a Soviet Marxist-inspired um, regime on their doorstep, uh, and the CIA says to Britain, can we do some covert kind of action here? Can we overthrow Jigan? And Britain's like, well, no, I don't really want to. Let's try, let's try another election first. Let's try some more open influence first. Um, and eventually, Harold Macmillan, the prime minister, thinks, OK, well, let's let the Americans do it. It's their backyard. It's their, their, their sphere of influence. But he delighted in making the Americans squeal first and tell us how great colonialism was and how we couldn't possibly let the um, British Guyanans become independent because they, because they couldn't be trusted. And this is <laughs> this wonderful line in McMillan's diary where he's like, yeah, we're going to let them do it, but don't tell them yet. Let's just let's make them dance first. And the Colonial Office were the same. The Colonial Office, um, there's this wonderful file. I think it related to British Guiana. But it was like, well... How dare the Americans accuse us of of colonialism? Let's let's count their colonial territories: Wyoming, Hawaii, Alaska, and it goes on like this. Pretty much every state outside of the the original few, um, and it's just this kind of constant little little rivalry, which which uh, struck me um, because it wasn't as as close and integrated as I think the common understandings. Right. Um, Suggest
1: Special relationship wasn't necessarily as special as we might have thought. But no. You mentioned the fact that Church and Pike kind of freaked out the British a little bit because of potential dirty laundry coming out. That didn't necessarily stop them from being tied at the hip into prominent 1980s covert actions that most people think are pr- primarily American. And that's Afghanistan and Iran-Contra, uh, where there was a heavy British hand. In fact, in both cases, it's unlikely these operations could have been carried out at all if it wasn't for the cooperation between CIA and SIS.
2: And the files are starting to come out at at home. Um, Obviously, they're very sparse. Um, But what really struck me about Afghanistan is this weird situation where the Brits wanted to to be involved, wanted to... to, um, Wanted to help partly to maintain the special relationship, so called special relationship, um, partly because it was in our interest to do it as well. But it was a lot of it revolved around facilitation, a lot of it revolved around trying to um, convince the, the Pakistanis, the Chinese, um, various North Africans to, to get involved. There was, was a wonderful almost paradoxical uh, a, a line that the um, far British Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington, gave when he said, oh, we're not doing, any, we're not doing anything in Afghanistan, which obviously he would say. But then, he, then he said, but maybe we are. <laughs> Just to kind of give the impression that we would, I think, give the impression that we were doing more than we actually were, um, which, which raises all sorts of interesting questions about the nature and purpose of covert action. Well, it's one of these
1: counterfactuals, about almost these what ifs, where The British were very valuable in the beginning because they did have the capability of bringing in weapons and contacts, or maybe you could freeze out the Pakistanis, the ISI. Obviously, the facilitation of arming the Mujahideen depended heavily, when all said and done, on a close-knit relationship between CIA and ISI, which has had its ups and downs (laughs) over the years. So looking back at this and reading this, I'm like, oh, if only, right? If only the British really had been in a position to facilitate this without bringing in the people who would later facilitate the Taliban and to help Bin Laden and everybody else—that could
2: have been a very different world. And that was the British pitch. Yeah. Um, the pitch was: look, let's—you don't need to go through ISI. Um, we've got contacts um, in certain areas of, of Afghanistan, which are long-standing as a as a direct result of our um, colonial history of our long history in Afghanistan. Um, Use them. Let's 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 work together. And it's another example of where the, the Brits were trying to use contact sources legacy to maintain influence in the in the American relationship. Um, and Britain was sending training teams to Afghanistan um, on a an annual basis, I think. But gradually, as the decade progressed, I think the British role waned. I think, I think we're, it, was, it was quite. It facilitated for the first little bit, then we sent some more direct training teams in, um, and then from 84, 85 onwards, as far as like we can tell, obviously the files may, right. may completely prove me wrong, but it seemed to, seemed to die down.
1: So let me, let me wrap up by asking you about transitions, because like the CIA, SIS scrambled when the Cold War ended to find a role. And in many cases, like the CIA, they picked up Things like counterproliferation and counter narcotics and counterterrorism, organized crime. Was there a retrenchment of covert action? I mean, where are we today or in the last 10 years or so um, compared to where we were at the height of the Cold War when it comes to the role of covert action and the broader British governmental system? So I know in your book you talk about even Iraq in 03 about Tony Blair advocating for a covert action solution. To the Iraq invasion. No one necessarily listening to that, <laughs> certainly not on this side of the Atlantic. But I'm wondering if you've seen, and again, you don't have access to everything, but from what you know, if you've seen there has been an increase, a decrease, it stayed consistent.
2: The chief of SIS gave a speech um, in in early December, and it was only his second public speech. It's very, very rare they, they ever say anything publicly. And he gave a he gave a line where he said um, one of SIS's key roles today is, I'll paraphrase, mastering covert action in the digital realm. Um, and he said, when I started as a junior officer, it was all about intelligence gathering. Now it's about shaping. Um, it's obviously not not true. We've been doing covert action a very long time. But for for a chief to come out and say this is one of the this is one of the primary functions of of SIS is disrupting. Um, terrorism and, um, uh, and, and 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 Russian operations, essentially. Um, I, I found that quite striking to come out and, and, and say it so publicly. But it, there's, there's still, even though the context is very different, there's still a lot of continuity. So he talked about um, the role of SIS is disrupting um, disrupting terrorist threats at source overseas. In a previous speech, he talked about disrupting terrorist threats in their half of the pitch, which is almost word for word identical as how, as to how um, Harold Macmillan described MI6's role in the 1950s, where he said, your role is to, quote, disrupt anti-British activities at source. So there's no change there. It's, it, covert action is is and has always been important in... Disrupting and keeping the threat away from the British mainland, um, and making life difficult for adversaries.
1: So the book is "Disrupt and Deny: Spy Special Forces and the Special Secret Pursuit of British Foreign Policy." The author is Rory Cormack. This is a really great mix of well-researched, of uh, historic intelligence, uh, while still being readable, which is—it's not all that easy to do, <laughs> right? Uh, Every so often, I think it was at Oxford University Press that yeah, but, it was when you see that, you're like, oh, OK, well, this is going to be one of those books. But it was surprisingly, I mean, it's about covert action. Right. So it's, it's going to be readable. So it's always nice to find a book that you can go. You know what? This is really well researched and I am not falling asleep while reading it. So congratulations I'll on that. that. Thank you. Uh, Rory, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Hey, listeners. and share your feedback now.